and welcome to this week's episode of How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm a partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is healthcare VC superstar Michelle Dipp. Dr. Dipp's a co-founder and partner of Longwood Fund, having co-founded Longwood portfolio companies Axial Biotherapeutics and OvaScience, both of which she now serves as chairman of the board. She previously served as the CEO of Alnara Pharmaceuticals, which was acquired by Eli Lilly, Veristem, and Flex Pharma, both of which are listed on the NASDAQ. Michelle Dipp is an overachiever in an industry of overachievers. As a young girl growing up in El Paso, Texas, though, she dreamed of being a professional ballerina. She worked diligently at it for eight years, studying under a Balanchine dancer from age four before two attempts at New York auditions ended in heartbreak. Six years of strict Catholic school later, she failed again, this time to get into Harvard, which had become her dream school after coming to terms with her mother's loving but pragmatic advice on ballet and on life. Sometimes, no matter how hard you work, she said, you're just not going to be good enough and you need to get over it. Now, near as I can tell, Michelle Dipp was never not good enough for anything again. Her Oxford undergrad experience turned into 12 years of study abroad, culminating in a stint as a first-class medical researcher. Her work, energy, and leadership skills garnered first the attention and then the high regard of both big pharma and big private equity. Driven to the cutting edge of medical science, she used her power and influence to develop promising new platforms into a series of companies that would make any VC salivate. In her spare time, she helped build a venture capital firm that would spawn them all, Longwood Fund, whose mission is to identify technologies and found companies that will advance new therapeutics that not only make a difference in the lives of patients worldwide, but also create significant value for investors. Michelle Dipp wants it all. She wants what her mom had, which, as a nurse in a Texas border town, was to make a difference in the lives of real people across a broad spectrum of cultural and socioeconomic circumstances. And she wants what her dad had, too, which is to build and lead businesses that make a difference in the community of which they are a part. That's what Michelle Dipp wants, and there is simply no doubt that she is good enough to get it. In our second segment this week, Michelle and I talked about the differences, similarities, and inevitable convergence of the two great tribes of the Boston innovation ecosystem, healthcare and tech. Using the example of her latest project, Axio Biotherapeutics, Michelle explains how new treatment platforms come about on the healthcare side and the process by which enterprising entrepreneurs turn promising scientific breakthroughs into therapies that help people in the real world. Now, Michelle is obviously a rock star, but also a delight to spend time with. I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know her, uh, in particular the person behind this awesome pedigree. As always, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. Here now, my conversation with my fellow board member of the New England Venture Capital Association, Michelle Dipp. All right, so Michelle Dipp, welcome. 
Great to see you. Great Thank to see you, you for having too. me. Thanks for uh, coming in to uh, see us here at uh, G20 World Headquarters. Sure. Where are, did you did you come into the right city? Right across or? the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So not, not a huge commute. Yeah, we're for based you. over at the Peru, so it's a very very short yeah, walk. Very painless. Which is good because you know I don't have a car. I you, walk everywhere. I did not know that. Yeah, walk an Uber. Do you have a license or? I do. I do. So uh, is it is it a principled stance, or you just never got around <laughs> to? I just I, I just really I, I spend most of my time walking around between yeah. Boston and Cambridge. So right. You live in Cambridge? I live in Boston. Oh, okay. A couple blocks from here. Right. So you're just living the urban dream that's there. That's right. <laughs> when I grow up, that's what I want to do, Michelle. <laughs> I have, uh, tragically, I have like 11 children, so I can't, uh, can't make that work. Um, all right. So I want to get to know you a little bit. So, you know, let's start off at the very beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in El Paso, Texas. So I don't know if you know where that is. It's way west on the border of Mexico and New Mexico. No, I don't. So... I don't. I know the uh, Frank Sinatra song. There you go. Down in the West Texas town, town of, of El Paso. Paso yeah. yeah, and you know, growing up there, you really have a very good sense uh, for the Mexican culture. Yeah. Um, and then we also have one of the largest uh, military bases there as well, called Fort Bliss. Any Mexican heritage so, in your family, or yes, on my dad's side. Yeah. So. And, and did he grow, was he born there? Was he yes, a, yeah. all of his family are from there, uh, raised there. Uh, he has some of his family also from uh, Mexico. Yeah. So, what do you think? Um, I, we haven't had a lot of people on the show that are that are from actually no one from Texas. Yep. What, what What do you think are the? How do you think growing up there in particular affect you? What do you take with you growing up in El Paso? Well, um, you know, El Paso is a, a beautifully rich uh, in terms of you know diversity and culture. And so you grow up really, I think, being appreciative and grateful. Um, it's also, on the whole, a very poor city. Yeah. And so you know, I, I went to an all-girl Catholic school that was very interested in giving back to the community. It's right. called Loretto Academy. And so we used to go actually every week over to the sister city called Juarez. Uh-huh. Um, so we'd go into Mexico. We were required to basically make a lunch every Wednesday. And we would literally take it over and give it to someone our own age. Wow. Um, who didn't have a lunch. So it was wow. very, I, you know, I remember this. It's very striking um, to be giving, you know, someone your own age um, a sandwich that you had made that yeah. morning. So you do uh, come away from that thinking, how do I make the world better? Huh. Um, and then also, you know, from, from a healthcare perspective, my mom was uh, an ER nurse. And my mom is from Dallas, so she, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Parkland, which is a pretty um, big government hospital sure, over in Dallas. Sure. And, um you know, you you really realize that you've got these kids are you know obviously growing up uh, in shacks, et cetera, and don't have you know access to vaccines and access to the kind of healthcare that we have in the United States. So right. you think a lot about how fortunate we are to be in a country where we do have. Um, access to healthcare. Now, I know that actually the recently <laughs> that's a whole other conversation less, which we can get into. That's <laughs> true for 23 million of us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It can't be a coincidence what your mom did and then you making this choice. Like, what was it about what her work that you found attractive? Was it the helping people aspect? Was it the something about, you know, a medical environment is just so you know, unique? Was sure. it was it the context? What what do you remember being attracted to as a young person? Sure. Um, I guess I was really attracted to um, being outside and nature and asking questions, but there's absolutely 
Um, I remember my mom at a very young age talking to me about science and the body and understanding, um, you know, things about health and wellness and those types of things. So, yeah, I I definitely think her influence has made a huge impact on my decision, which, by the way, was um, I I wanted to be a doctor. So, you know, my world in El Paso, I didn't know what private equity was or a hedge fund. Yeah. I, mean, I had never heard of that. I didn't know what venture capital was. I'm sure you were a better um, person for it. Sure. <laughs> Biotech uh, was a completely new phrase that I learned much, much later in grad school. Yeah. So I grew up in, you know, quite frankly, a very simple environment. So um, where'd you go to college? I went to college over in the UK at Oxford. So tell me about, that. that's a big deal. Not a lot of, you know, young women from El Paso end up at Oxford. <laughs> Um, How did that, tell us that story. You know, I had gone to a summer school there in high school and had studied uh, economics and ended up just getting very, you know, I applied and got very lucky and got accepted. Also, just so you know, for the record, I didn't get into Harvard, which was my dream school. So I was so (laughs) heartbroken that I didn't get into Harvard. And um, yes, I, I went off to Oxford. Oxford's a very unique place. It's not, I always tell people it's not for everyone. Uh, It's a very confrontational style of learning. I happen to love it. Um, So you do basically tutorials with your professors uh, every week. So you're sitting there, you write an essay, and um, you sit and, and debate whatever it was that you wrote about. And interestingly, you know, I I was studying medicine, so I think most people assume, okay, sure, you write an essay if you're studying, you know, English or some other, you know, something else in the liberal arts. But for medicine, how could you possibly write an essay about chemistry? (laughs) And the answer is you can. Um, There's a lot of diagrams uh, right along with it. But, you know, I really, I really loved it. I grew um, tremendously as a person, not just because I was exposed to wonderful people who could, you know, teach me wonderful things, but they have this ethos about teaching you how to think, so how to question, how to analyze. Um, And then perhaps the most obvious thing is it's a very cosmopolitan place. So, um, you know, obviously based uh, about an hour outside of London in the UK, it attracts a very diverse group. Um, of people, so I really loved learning uh, from from people from all over the world, different cultures, different religions, and that really is just a whole other education in itself. Did you know you wanted to be a doctor when you went there? Yes. Right. Oh, I felt um, I felt like I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. Um, I, you know, it, also it's because I had failed at what I my my dream was as a twelve year old. I wanted to be a professional ballerina. Really? Yeah. So funnily enough, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Don't laugh that hard, Mike. No, You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's awesome. So you know, it's it's very interesting. El Paso had. Um, a very good ballet school. Uh, there was this a ballerina, Barbara Driscoll, who had actually danced with Balanchine. Wow. And so, you know, we would go in as as little kids. I started ballet when I was four or five. You know, you'd go in, you'd see these pictures of her dancing with Balanchine. So, and she would encourage us so much that we could do, you know, anything we put our mind to. Uh, so I, I went to New York twice. And it's one of the, I don't know if you know anything about ballet, but you start out doing about three hours on the bar. You know, you do these exercises then you go and you stretch, and and then finally it's your time to audition. I was on stage all of three seconds. My leg wasn't even in the air, and they're like, 
next. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm, like, heartbroken. You know, I go from New York all the way back to El Paso and, 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 and went, went back again, tried to try out again. And, you know, my mom said to me, you know what, Michelle, sometimes you're going to work really hard and you're just not going to be good enough. You know, sometimes it's just not going to happen for you. Just, you know, get over it, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, the whole ballet thing didn't really work out. So I decided I would be a doctor. So I was over in the UK for 12 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, and I studied medicine, and then I also did a PhD, um, and I did postdoctoral research. You know, I did medicine really, as I said, you know, from the from the beginning, and then um, I got excited. I, well, it's funny. I learned that in order to graduate with honors, you had to do some lab work. So the PhD part had had no plans for that. But I wanted to graduate with honors, so I started doing um, work in the lab, and I was fascinated and became a complete science geek and and was obsessed. So uh, I ended up doing um, a PhD. They call it a DPhil there uh, in pulmonary hypertension. Uh-huh. And was really, um, you know, fascinated by that topic, and did my postdoc work in that and in cardiothoracic. No, had that at, at some point, like you have to decide if you're going to be like a primary care or yes. a urologist or like whatever you're going to be, yes. right? And so, like, had you planned on being more of a people think of like a white coat doctor laying your hands on people kind of person, and you sort of fell in love with research, or, or like what, what was that sort of pivot? It sounds like there was a change along the way, no? Um, so you're, you're exactly right. I yeah. grew up, you know, I'm a very, I mean, I, I consider myself to be, you know, very much a people person. Yeah. I like uh, being around people. I like feeling, you know, it's it, it, it's very fulfilling to feel like you're helping people, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, I absolutely thought I would be a practicing doctor. Didn't think I would actually like the research part because I felt like the lab seemed like this very isolated place where people, you know, tinkered around until, sure. you know, the wee hours of the morning. So it didn't, that didn't seem attractive to me um, at all. But I ended up, uh, and I wanted to be an eye surgeon. So I thought that was, I was very interested in the brain and thought it was really cool that the eye was kind of like the gateway, um, in, you know, into the brain. Um, so see if I could, if I looked into your pupils now, I could <laughs> see into your neural networks. You're creeping me out a little. <laughs> but yeah. But, um, but I, so I did want to be a practicing doctor, had zero interest in research. But once you get into into medicine, you realize that actually, if you want to be at the forefront of medicine and give your patients the latest care, then it's obvious that research has to be a part of that, right? right, right. So a lot of the very best clinicians do, in fact, uh, you know, have their own research lab or at least participate in clinical trials or you know whatever form right. uh, they decide. So you get through this 12-year experience overseas yeah, and, yeah. and you sort of, you know, you know, are at the top of that environment and like what, what, walk us through what you, what you decided to do next and why. So, you know, during my PhD thesis, we started publishing papers and we were working on drugs from Takeda. And I got phone calls from hedge funds. I had no idea what they did. Didn't, I didn't understand what a hedge fund was. And so I was so excited. So I had all these people calling me saying, well, I do, a, you know, well, can they pay me however much to do a phone call to uh, um, talk about the, you know, the different drugs in the area? And right. I said, oh, no, no, you don't have to pay me. I mean, I, I'm a struggling student. That wasn't very smart. I should have, I should have jacked up the, the price. Yeah. So... I realized that there were people 
um, who were basically betting on which of these uh, companies were going to make it in pulmonary hypertension. So pulmonary arterial hypertension at that point in time had a handful of biotechs interested in the space, and they were trying to figure out, you know, which uh, which mechanism, which drug, et cetera. What does, did my preclinical mouse and rabbit work mean for you right. know, patients? And so I remember being so fascinated by these people, first of all, that had an interest in my tiny little uh, topic. I would have talked about it, you know, for, for, for weeks on weeks. Right. Uh, but I thought it was pretty interesting that they really could have an impact by funding these smaller companies. And that's when I really learned that there were smaller companies competing with the bigger companies. Of course, I'd had exposure to, you know, GSK, Pfizer, et cetera. But the world of the Genentechs and the Genzymes and the Biogens, that's not a world uh, that I I knew much less the you know the, the smaller companies in that world. So right. I went to my chemistry professor uh, Graham Richards, and he was you know the uh, biotech guy uh, at Oxford because he was involved in a lot of spinouts. And I don't know if you ever knew about this screensaver project. I remember when I was in college, you could basically sign up to let the chemistry department. Uh, at you know at our university, use your use the power of your com computer. Yeah, so he started. I signed up that. for SETI. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Very cool. I, I was, very I was cool. One of those yes. So that was, you know, back in the day when they were screening, you know, does this chemical grab on to, you know, to this, this spot? And, of course, we were using, yeah. you know, this computational drug design. And I said to him, please, can I come do some kind of a free internship in one of your spinouts? Because I want to understand biotech. And he said to me, you know, Michelle, uh, happy to, but let me tell you what, you're only going to get a very narrow exposure if you do that because it'll be one company. So why don't I see if I can get you an internship at the Wellcome Trust? I don't know if you know uh, who the Wellcome Trust are. They're kind of like the Gates Foundation. Right. So in the UK, they were, funnily enough, they were funding my PhD. <laughs> so right. um, they were one of the groups that were funding pure primary research, like, you know, PhD work, postdoc work, labs, et cetera. They were also, at that point in time, directly funding biotech companies. So they had a direct investment portfolio. And then what they were really known for, and they still do today, their alternative assets group, they are uh, large LPs, right? So they are... Uh, LPs of funds, both, you know, tech, uh, healthcare, et cetera, but also really large private equity funds like, you know, Blackstone and, and, and others like CVC, et cetera. Sure. So I, you know, I said, great, thank you. And, and um, sure enough, went to meet with, um, at that point in time, it was Julie S.K. Eagle, uh, who was running the direct investments portfolio on, on the healthcare side, and then Sandra Robertson, who ran all of their alternative investments. She's now actually the, the CIO uh, of Oxford, Oxford's first CIO, and I know you're a tech guy, so I have to say that's Chief Investment Officer, Got not it. not Information Th Officer. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> um, yeah, we were kind at, at Oxford. We were not as exposed to a lot of you know probably what you were exposed to. I remember yeah. email. We used to to line up at, outside the computer room. I'd probably check my email once a week. You know, we right. didn't have as much internet access. Um, so anyway, that was really my entree into biotech and that was really the the time where I decided to leave medicine uh, and go uh, into biotech 
you know, when I was at the Welcome Trust, I had some amazing, uh, amazing mentors there, uh, Julie and, and Sandra being uh, two of them, um, who both, of course, obviously happened to be women, which, you know, had a, a great impact uh, on me as well. But I realized that, wow, I could, you know, really satisfy that science geek side of me and meet some of the most incredible people. I mean, these founders and CEOs of these companies were just some of the most tremendous people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And so the question was, you know, my my job, right, I was obviously very, very junior there. You know, my job was simply to do some of the, the scientific right. um, diligence. Um, but, you, you know, I loved... I loved what I did, and I realized, okay, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm really going to like this, and so I like this just as much as I like medicine, so I think I'm going to do this, and it was Sandra who, and she's just remained a wonderful mentor of mine throughout my life, which is very fortunate, but she's the one that said to me, um, you need to be an operator if you ever want to be a good investor. And um, she is the person that introduced. I know you had Kevin Bitterman. Yeah. On yeah. So she is. We invested in Certris. Yeah. Kevin's yeah, company. Yeah, sure. Sure. And uh, that was one of the investments that I was very involved in because it was you know in that short period of time when I was at Welcome. So we invested in that, and then I actually went to join Certris. So that was my first you know job in biotech, if huh. you will. So Christoph Westfall was the CEO. Rich Aldrich was on the board, and those are now my two partners at Longwood. Yeah, so it was a storied company that that uh, yes, that was one one that uh, sort of you know, you know, I guess for tech people, it's almost like what PayPal was on the West Coast. Yes, that's, that's right. Um, so so um, you know, talk a little bit about let's let's dig into that 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 need to be an operator. Yeah, um, it, is that is that about um, um, so. So you can relate to the people that you're investing in. Is it so that you understand the nuances of what's required to be successful? What is the source of that advice? Um, you know, because that that's sort of become conventional wisdom. But I'm curious if it's mm-hmm. any different on the healthcare side than it is in tech. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, and I think um, it is a little bit different in healthcare and tech. But you know, I think what what Sandra was saying um, was if you are an operator, you are better at judging other operators. Um, Now, what I think has changed a little bit, and and maybe something, you know, she was always seeing the best deals, right? Because it was was welcomed there like a blue chip. Um, But what I think has also changed more recently is, as we know, if you want to get into the best deals, you're you're selling them, right? So it's not just your ability to diligence the opportunity, the person, et cetera. Right. It's also saying to them, here's how I can help you, right? Because I think, um, and, and, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong on this. I know people have different views here. I really believe that if you are going to invest in a company, you need to be asking yourself the question, what can I uniquely add to this company or to this team, yeah. right? Um, I, I think companies now, especially more than ever, can get capital anywhere, especially the best companies. And so it's how do you make yourself a value-add investor? And in my opinion, um, because I've been a co-founder of companies, because I've been a CEO of a company uh, that, that I started, a CEO of a company that I took public, I think I can uniquely 
add um, to the experience of someone else who's doing that for the first time. So it was probably some of the best advice I've ever received. And I think it's, it, it, it goes both ways. So both the diligence aspects of it, as well as, you know, helping um, sell yourself, if you will, to the, yeah, yeah. to, to, you know, whatever new investment comes your way. No, I think that's well said. And I think that's identical to the tech side because yeah. I have that. I feel very strongly about that in the same way. Actually, it was one of the founding insights of G20. You know, if you look at what happened in tech, you have you know these billion-dollar funds, and they hire all these FTEs, and they bring all these resources to the table, and and so I think the genesis of G20 was Bob and Bill sort of sitting down to say, well, is there a way we can attract the capabilities that entrepreneurs like without the overhead that limited partners hate. Right. 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 Um, and so the G20 model was if we could get a group of, you know, very accomplished people to invest and participate in a fund and even participate in the carry of the fund, um, that, uh, that they would be able to bring those people to bear, uh, in service to portfolio companies. And, and, you know, to my knowledge, these guys were the first to do that. And, and it is the core of our model that at the end of the day, if you're, you know, you need if you're a tech guy and you need product advice, like who better to talk to than Andy Ori? If right. you are trying to build a board, who better to talk to than Jit Saxena or Ash Ashutosh or you know whatever? Or, you know, so that that notion of um, that the future of VC, you know, the capital class as a whole has always been defined by the deals at the top, right? You take the top ten deals out of any geography, any fund, any you know, and the whole the, it falls apart, right? So there is competition for those top deals, and you got to be able to add value. And so I would say that's very consistent. Sure. Um, and I do think that it's hard to relate to operators and support them if you if you've not walked in their shoes. Right. Right. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. So you know, I, I have um, two great partners. Uh, Rich Aldrich and Christoph Westphal, who've you know done this before. So uh, Rich started Vertex. You're probably very familiar with sure. Vertex, of course. Here, yeah. Um, and, and and to think that they're treating hepatitis C, you know, which was before just um, pr- absolutely uh, considered to be untreatable, and and some might argue even um, a death sentence. And then Christoph is very well known for having started many of the Boston companies, right. Alnila, Momenta. Um, etc. And so, you know, we we started Longwood with this concept. So it, it's funny, actually, Searchus got bought by GSK, GlaxoSmithKline. Sure. And it was Glaxo that said to us, why don't you start a fund? So before that, we were basically just starting companies, the three of us, and then we would attract VC, uh, you know, venture capital money. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so they, they were the first ones that came to us. And we said, okay, if we start a fund in healthcare, how do we do what we love to do and what we do best, and then how do we make money for our LPs if we're going to take other people's money uh, to you know to do this? Right. And so we thought about you know what certainly what I like doing and 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 what they like doing is picking areas of science that are very visionary, big, meaningful. Um, that will really make a difference in the lives of the patient. So not going after the next blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine, but thinking about how can we uniquely transform a particular area of science, um, whether it's you know fertility, which is obviously close to my heart with uh, OvaScience. Sure. And, you know, I, I love the, the women's health space. Um, and then something we've been working on more recently, which is uh, neuro, which is another huge, you know, another big, hairy, audacious goal, as they call them. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we just, as a, a, 
as uh, a medical field just hasn't, we haven't cracked it yet. So um, we are a mix of companies that we start by identifying really important science, often out of labs nearby. Uh, so I, I walk to the labs. <laughs> so I've spent a lot of time in the labs at Harvard, at MIT, at Northeastern, at Tufts, et cetera, and really get to know the scientists because, again, it's the same thing, right? Those scientists have their pick of, of who they can go um, you know, start a, uh, go start a company with, but we want right. them to choose us. Right. And so it's it's um, it, you know building the company, identifying the science, identifying the team, making sure the intellectual property checks out, et cetera. Um, that mixed with just your you know your classic um, investing in. I, I hate to use the word passive, but not co-founding, yeah, right? Sure. So you're an active board member. Yeah. So um, that's really what we've done. You know, we're on our fourth fund now and um, have been, you know, fortunate in funds uh, one, two, and three. Fund one has been a good return for us, for us uh, three and a half X cash on cash return, which in our healthcare world is good. I know in, in your tech world, you all have um, different, that's, different that's pretty good. levels of oh, returns. That's, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> we're not going to have a thousand X on, yeah. on anything. Yeah. So people, um, particularly on the tech side, you know, IPO happens much earlier in the in the arc of a of a healthcare company, and and um, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience because it's still a you know it's a huge milestone for a company uh, to you know launch into the public market. You know, tell us about what it was like doing that with with OvaScience. Sure, you know, it's funny. I I mentioned to you, and you know this, my. Uh all of my friends joke with me because I'm usually their their token healthcare friend. I'm like the only <laughs> healthcare person they know because I end up hanging out with all tech people. But um, and they always this is the, the biggest topic. I mean, we have this discussion all the time. Why on earth do healthcare companies IPO so early? Yeah. And you know the answer because we have to. We don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Because we we have to accept the fact that we are going to require a lot more capital and a lot more time before we have a product, right? You all are able to create product. I, you know, I just, I love watching Silicon Valley, but it's so true, <laughs> right? You're like, you, you know, it, it's amazing to watch with, you know, $500,000, you know, a year later, you actually have something. Right. And by the way, you can beta test it. That's the other thing we don't have the luxury of. Right. We, you know, our, our testing, sure, we can do clinical trials, but you don't get to just, spend billions of dollars 10 to 20 years later and then say, oh, why don't you try the red pill or the blue pill and yeah. tell me which one you like better? You know, it doesn't, doesn't work that sure. way. So No AB um, testing when you're making people. Exa exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, we, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to think, and, and, and it depends on what kind of, in, you know, investor you are. Um, I, I personally like investing in companies that have, the ability at least to fully integrate. And so what I mean by that is they're not looking to go out and get bought by pharma. They're not looking to go and IPO as an exit. Because by the way, in healthcare, IPOs are not um, necessarily exit opportunities, which, whereas in tech they are. Right. Um, IPOs uh, for, for healthcare companies are simply another form of raising capital. So when I look at my buy side list of, you know, over 300 people and you look at your healthcare VC list of, you know, let's say 15, right. um, there are just a lot more 
more people in the public markets um, that are looking to invest in healthcare than there are in the in, in private equity. So it, wow. it's just as simple as that. That's why we end up doing an IPO um, so early. And I would say what you end up seeing is these companies that, quite frankly, are not ready for the public lens. I mean, we all of us who've ever been a, a public company CEO will tell you um, w- w- it's not fun, right? Sure. You never love being a public company CEO. Why? Because you don't have um, what analysts want. You know, you we're not this cookie cutter. Oh, we're going to have you know here's our our PE ratio, and yeah, you know we're yeah. we're not even cash flow positive, yeah. right? We're cash flow negative. So we're really not meant to be public, but we just are public because it's how, it's, it's our form of, um, you know, of raising money. Um, but we, you know, I really believe that you're looking to invest in a company that's in it for the long term. So the good news is at least those that do go public, they're going to go through, you know, ups and downs and then even more downs, yeah. right? We've witnessed the last, uh, I, in fact, I don't know, I, I don't, you, you don't quite have this uh, happening in tech and you always hear about, you know, bubbles and all this kind of thing, but certainly biotech, um, the, you know, the public markets, I think I was reading a JP Morgan report, um, 85% of companies who are under a billion in market cap right now are trading at less than half of cash. Wow. So, you know, we have gone through a very tough time in the public markets, um, for small cap biotech in the last two years. You know, does that give me pause? Absolutely not. I think it's the, like one of the best times to invest in healthcare, right? right? right. Um, you know, I think it's yeah, I think it's great. Right. Um, well, tech people would see that as reasonable valuation. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Which exactly. we don't have the luxury of. Yeah. Um, so, what is the point where you know you have a winner? Like, if it's not the validation of an IPO and you have a stable business and whatever, is there a is there a, a particular and consistent milestone where you say, okay, you know? This really, um, this means like we're, what marks the the big time, you know, if it's not the IPO? Yeah, so I think, and and different investors are looking for, um, you know, different value inflection points. Um, I I think there are two big value inflection points um, that are, that come way before all the revenues, you know, the obvious things that you can measure. So the first one is, have you gotten your therapy into patients and is it working? So is it safe, of course, and is it working? That's a big value inflection point. And that's actually the value inflection point that I love to um, invest in. The second one is a little bit more of a regulatory one, which is then after, you know, phase two, phase three trials, um, and sorry, you know, phase one is typically safety. Phase two is typically, does it actually work? So if it was a diabetes drug, number phase one is, is it safe? Phase two is, does it lower blood sugar? Phase three is in, in you know tens of thousands of patients who by the way probably also have high cholesterol high blood pressure how does that drug um, you know mix in with other drugs etc exactly yeah in the wild that's uh, a good way of putting yeah. it phase 3 is in the wild and then do you get approval does the FDA said say yes um, you are now um, th- this drug is now approved for sale that so that's that other value inflection right. point so i like you know that that first one so you know a company that we just started um, back in November is in the neurospace, which I think is, you know, the next big frontier because we just haven't cracked it, right? And so when you're looking at something like Parkinson's disease, um, this is a company that is uh, still preclinical, but is entering into clinical studies. So when will I feel like we've really, um, you know, I, I can kind of breathe a sigh of relief when we show that in a clinical trial, our approach works. Yeah. You know, one of the things you mentioned as we were talking when you first arrived is the sort of unique challenges of neuro. And you just described yeah. 
for us. You know, your whole approach is you're identifying these big untapped areas of science and and then looking for ways to create new therapies on the back of new, you know, technology in the broad, broadest sense. Um, give us a quick primer on the, the, the sort of green field of enabling science and, and what's unique about neuro, um, you know, here in 2017. Sure. Um, you know, it's always fun when you're working on an area of science that's controversial. And you just have to make sure um, that that when it's controversial, what you're looking at from a scientific perspective is a- that the science is actually real. Right. Uh, so, you know, in the case of um, ovascience, people were saying, no, oh, no, no, egg precursor cells don't exist. Why? Because we always thought women were born with a set number of eggs that die over time, which is absolutely the case in the middle of the ovary. It's just that no one was bothering to look in this outer ovarian cortex, which is where these immature egg cells um, reside. And because of different tools, et cetera, they weren't able to identify those cells. And so, you know, that was a big, exciting discovery uh, that was published in Nature back in 2004. Then they found the cells in patients and, you know, in women uh, in 2012. That was the cover of Nature Medicine. And so you're dealing with an area where people say, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, uh, until you're not, and then it's obvious, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and then I'd, I would say it's the same for neuro, you know, with this company, um, we're going through the whole, oh my, you know, is it, is it crazy to think that you can actually treat the gut to treat the clinical manifestations of, of the brain? So, you know, fast forward back, you know, why is it that we don't have great treatments for Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, autism? Right. Um, and it's simply because the brain is really good at protecting itself, which is what you want, right? And so in, in when you are healthy, you have, a, you know, a blood-brain barrier that protecting things from getting in. So the challenge is on, on the drug side of things or protein or, you know, however you want to think about your particular therapy, it's really hard to get things into the brain. And so I was joking with you uh, before we started that, you know, sometimes people are actually literally right now, right, drilling uh, into the skull to try to, um, to, try to te- uh, treat, treat the brain. And I don't know if you've even heard of, if you ever heard of like deep brain stimulation, you know, I remember watching this awesome neurosurgeon when I was at Oxford, Tipo Aziz. He did this for the first time to basically stop the Parkinsonian tremor, you know, the, the, the pill yeah, rolling sure. tremor in the hand. And so it's amazing, you know, he could, he could stimulate the brain and the tremor would stop. You could watch this patient who was, you know, under... Uh, anesthesia, but their their tremor would stop. So neuro is has always been an area that people have been very excited about because it's an important area for patients, but we just haven't cracked it yet. And so there's this really incredible scientist who used to be here at Harvard and then Caltech stole him. And um, he has been focused on neuro, but from the perspective of the gut. So uh, the microbiome, do you eat yogurt? I hope you do. I do. I do. <laughs> I'm glad you do. So we have bacteria in our gut, right? And so there's good bacteria, there's bad bacteria. And so the argument is basically, if you have the right um, flora in your gut, then the microvilli in your small intestine, so, you know, the things that, that where, where things get absorbed, essentially, yep. um, in your small intestine, um, th- that... If you're healthy, you don't let certain toxins in and you let nutrients in, right? right? If you're not healthy, the sizes of those pores 
um, can be uh, the wrong size, and then they can let toxins in. Right. And so everyone always said, okay, well, that, you know, that makes sense, and you've probably heard of this concept of the gut-brain axis. Sure. Well, that's a lot of the work um, that Sarkis has done. And so you know, it's very interesting when you think about Parkinson's disease. I don't know if you've ever heard of alpha-synuclein, which is kind of like this protein or plaque. I, I, that was, sounds like a planet yeah. on Star Trek. <laughs> you know um, what it really does. That would be, yeah. that's awesome. They should The alpha synucleans. I totally. We were, on, we were on patrol. Yeah, it has a nice Second day of shore leave at alpha synuclein. <laughs> so th- we have always been able to identify Parkinson's because of alpha synuclein in the brain. And so what was very interesting is a lot of patients who have neurological disorders, namely Parkinson's, right, they also have gut disorders as well. So there's oh. severe constipation in patients with uh, Parkinson's, and they also found alpha-synuclein plaques in the gut. Oh. So everyone always thought that um, the plaques basically started in the brain and then made their way down the vagus nerve, which is just a nerve that, you know, there's a connection in the brain and a connection in the gut. So they thought the plaques traveled down and deposited into the gut. Well, there was a recent cell paper uh, about six months six months ago, that showed no, it's the other way around. Actually, the plaques in the gut can be identified, and and the symptoms, by the way, in the gut are identified even twenty years before you see the Parkinsonian traits that are that are the neurological manifestations. Wow. So the gait, the the tremor, those types of things. So. Um, what his lab believe, and what we at Axial believe, is that those plaques, um, you know, go through. Basically, there there's a, a, a toxin gets into the gut, and then the plaques basically go from the gut up the vagus nerve and deposit themselves in the brain. And so, you know, why? I, I, I promise you, I won't get too geeky on the science side, but you know, why is that important? Well, it's important because it says to us there's actually a new way to treat the clinical manifestations that we see in the brain, and that is through the gut. So it's just a new, you know, vantage point or entry point. So at the very least, we think we can treat the GI disturbances that we see, and what we're really hopeful of is that we can also treat the neurological uh, manifestations. Right, so so in a way, you know, a a more familiar analog to people might be that we we can, you know, reduce the incidence of heart disease by treating cholesterol. Right. Uh, there's this sort of precursor condition, right. this sort of exactly. thing that we can and we can attack that, right. and thus you know either slow the progression of or even hopefully eliminate. Right. Um, and so you're saying that there may be a similar connection there, exactly. or, or you believe there to be. Yes. Um, a similar connection there between these plaques that develop in the gut and the later onset of Parkinson's. Exactly. Um, and and is this like when you're when you're formulating a company around a hypothesis like that? Is the bet that you can create an intervening therapy that reduces the occurrence of Parkinson's specifically, or is this a whole new area where you might have you might have a company at some stage that has you know six or seven different things that can prevent from happening? Mm-hmm. Like, is the gut a path to Alzheimer's, or is the gut a path to whatever creating genius children, or <laughs> or like you know what's the how big is the bet? Uh, right. something like this. Right. And I guess it, you know, it depends. I mean, in our portfolio, we do have some what we call, you know, product bets. So that's like a single uh, therapy or a single drug where right. you're going after a specific disease, like what you just described. Yeah. What I get really excited about personally, though, um, is the the latter, what, what we would call a platform bet, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's not just about Parkinson's. We also are going to use a similar approach, not nothing to do with alpha-synuclein, but I just use 
use that yeah, as an sure. example, um, a similar approach to treat autism yeah. and a similar approach to treat you know several other uh, neurological diseases. So we think that um, you know this bet, if you will, is a whole different way to treat diseases of the brain by essentially going through the gut and using the microbiome. Yeah. So either using the bugs themselves, I call it bugs and drugs. <laughs> it's like B-U-G-Z-N, D-R-U-G-Z. Yeah. So basically are, you can either use the bugs themselves or you can use drugs that have an effect on either the bugs themselves or, you know, not to get into too much detail, but, you know, the, the bugs um, are secreting enzymes, which are having, you know, a, a, a biological effect. So you right. have some um, entry point which you are, you know, inhibiting in one of the, uh, right. along uh, th that pathway. So, so. And so ironically today I'm, st I'm starting a, um, a Whole30, do you know what that is? No. It's like, um, so it's a, um, it's an amazing, uh, it's an eating program. I'm loath to call it a diet, but it's, you essentially eliminate a whole bunch of toxins from your diet for 30 days. Yep. And it's like hardcore. Yeah. It's like no, no milk, no sugar, no grains, uh, no legumes. You can't even eat wow. beans. Um, and, um, and it's very, um, it's, it's very strict. It's my, this will be my third one. Bob Hauer actually turned me on. Wow. To it, but, What'd you eat for breakfast? Um, so I had a black coffee and a, um, an RX bar, which is egg yeah, white, sure. almonds and, and, uh, figs and stuff like that. A anyway, um, one of the interesting phenomena of it is, is on day 14, you have this, there's this phenomenon they call tiger blood. And, and one of the, one of the sort of side benefits of this, cause you really do feel good is just, and, and for lack of a better term, you have this mental clarity. Yes. Um, and you realize like how much of your life you're living in a carb fog of like whatever. And like you, it, it's energy and it's a whole bunch of other things, but, but I really do believe that this is just just intuitively yes that this connection between you know the food we eat and the things we consume and that idea of mental clarity you know you know this is something Tom Brady talks about a lot oh absolutely um, and uh, all the anti-inflammatory stuff and whatever but he he does talk about it in terms of that mental connection oh i um, totally agree so it does feel yeah. like this is something real and if and if you know but in at least in western medicine you know, historically, we have not really pursued this as a as an avenue. Right, right. Um, and um, you know, certainly, if you look back, uh, you know, just in terms of cultures, uh, you you'll see that people do eat yogurts and that type of thing, and and and, and certain types of pickled vegetables that you'll see right. uh, in some of the Asian cultures. You know, kimchi is good for you. <laughs> There's yeah, a lot yeah. of pre and probiotics right. in in. Um, in kimchi. But that, that really is your job in a way. Like it's a new angle on it because I think, again, we, we do think of it as this very clinical, um, you know, idea in terms of, and again, we, I'm speaking for the tech side now. Sure. Um, but, but, but on the tech side, we have this expression that, you know, all hegemony begins as heresy that, <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, my closest experience with this was really Actifio, that this idea that you would virtualize data that you were going to use, you know, okay for secondary, but in production environments, like it was really uh, out there. Sure. Um, uh, and, and now it's like, well, yeah, of course you yeah, would do that. Right? Right. Um, so there is that, that sort of cut over, but, but this notion that you're looking for science that indicates new, I like that word platforms, uh, uh, again, a word we also have on the tech side, and that you're going to look for therapies in these whole new areas that seem to be opening up at what seems to be an unprecedented rate. Like right. it feels like we had this wave of like, uh, 
you know, uh, penicillin and like whatever. Right. And then things kind of dropped off for a while. Yes. Um, until you have these genetic therapies. And now all of a sudden it just feels like, you know, there's all this new shit to figure out. Right. And, and like all these new therapies and, and avenues that have promise. Right. Um, but this like extended period, like, you know, uh, where it just takes, it just seems like it takes, you hear about these things, these, you know, particularly with relate with, with respect to Alzheimer's and sure. heart disease, sure. uh, which are very visible, uh, sure. illnesses. I guess diabetes would be the other of the big three. Right. Uh, but you hear about these things on the nightly news and it just seems like it takes forever to get from that promise, uh, to, you know, something that you, that you can go get at CVS. Right. Know? And the, and the speed and, you know, I think that, the, the future is basically our two worlds coming together, right? Yeah, yeah. How are we ever going to speed up what we do? Well, AI, yeah, right? Yeah. So use of AI in healthcare, or I don't know if you saw, it's funny, speaking of Ariana Huffington, um, at last year's Fortune Healthcare Conference, did you see IBM Watson announce their deal with Celgene? Yeah, it was like I did. the first time, you know, everybody's waiting, right? When is an Amazon or... Uh, you know, an Apple, I mean, I would argue actually Google and Apple are already, you know, clearly dipping their toes in, yeah. in healthcare. But when are they going to make a big, big uh, acquisition or, or, you know, call it what you want? Um, I, and I think we're really starting to see that. So it, on the healthcare side, the, the discoveries are there, right? Everything's there. You just need to go look at and find it. it it's, in, it's in a lab somewhere. You know, yeah. the latest thing that I'm really excited about, it's funny, it's in Canada. It's like an hour outside of uh, Toronto, someone who came out of a, a lab here at Harvard and went and started a lab there. So the discoveries are there. It's just we are now developing the tools mm. to be able to use the, dis- you know, the discoveries. The, so, the, this convergence of, of tech and healthcare, you know, I'm curious, do you, do you think it's, you know, the first digital de- prescription? Do you think it'll be software AI driven, or do you think, like, you know, y- you read about the sort of the the, the myth of the sort of plaque eating nanobot, you know, <laughs> that you just somebody's going to give you a shot and yeah. and these things are going to like go yeah. through your system and yeah. just, you know. Do you think it's hardware or do you think it's software that is the first point of convergence? Oh boy, it's, I think it's software. Yeah. Yeah, I really think it, it's it's all about the software. And in fact, um, I, I spent uh, the weekend talking to this founder of this company that I was describing in uh, uh, over in Canada because they his lab. You know, he's he's a biologist, okay, right? He but he he has seven computer scientists in his in his lab who've been writing software. Now, I, I, you know, I'm the first to admit I, I don't know the first thing about whether the software is any good or not. Right. Um, but no, I, I, I think the future there uh, will be software. So I'm just waiting for the day where I can sit here and, and say to uh, to Alexa, I have a headache and something, ma- you know, some drone <laughs> delivers, right? Amazon is going to, it's all going to be connected and Amazon's going to drop off my prescription, right? Or even better, maybe it's not that, right? I have a headache and I put on my, you know, my VR goggles that, that get rid of my headache because it's not a drug that I'm going to take to get rid of it. It's going to be some video game that I play. So I, I, I want to just wrap up here with, um, you know, a lot of our listeners are women. For the benefit of people who are er- earlier on, you know, it, it seems like we're, 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 we at least have awareness of this problem, this bias against women. There was a, actually a great piece last week. I tweeted about it that they had interviewed a bunch of people to sort of get how they reacted to women and male entrepreneurs who had a very similar set of attitudes. Did I you see it? I saw that. Um, it's very and, interesting. Yeah, we talked about it. And um, it, it is very real. Um, 
you know, in the world as it is today, wherever we're headed, you know, people argue about how much progress we're making, whether we need to go faster. What advice do you have for women entrepreneurs, uh, in, you know, in, in either discipline, healthcare or tech, um, about, about, you know, how they can overcome the challenges that are unique to women uh, who are starting companies or, or who aspire to uh, be on the investor side? Yeah, it, you know, I get this question a lot, sure. and, I, and I'm glad you brought up the topic. I think yeah. it's an important topic. And I think, you know, one of the, the things that I say to, um, you know, women entre, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, or, or just, you know, anyone who asks for advice um, as a woman, and actually I'm getting increasingly more men asking me for advice, too, on how yeah. they can empower um, women as well, which I think is, you know, a great thing. Um, the first thing that I say to other women is be sure you are seeking out uh, mentors, both women and men, but, you know, mentors uh, who are going to support you. So in your space, outside of your space, um, it definitely at least have, you know, one woman who's, who's a mentor to you. People that will give you honest, real feedback. So I think right. you need mentors and coaches, and I do think, you know, there's a, a difference there. Um, and then um, I, I think it's really important to be seeking feedback from people so that you can understand how you're being uh, perceived by uh, by others, but you'd be surprised the number of people that actually don't. Everyone's so busy, and we're all guilty of this, right? We're so busy um, working full time, twenty four seven, that we don't take the time to say, "Let me go and spend my one hour with my mentor, whatever it is, once a quarter or whatever sure. it might be." And I think that actually, um, you know, that it, it, it helps a lot. And I, you know, I've been fortunate to collect. <laughs> some wonderful mentors along the way, and I, you know, I still do that. Um, you know, the the other thing that I think um, is important is if you are in a position of leadership. So when I was um, a CEO, I made sure I made a point to have um, you know very open uh, conversations with w women at our company. Um, it, you know. It, Funnily enough, maybe because it was a woman's health company, we did sort of naturally attract a very diverse um, background, both in terms of, you know, age, culture, sex, everything. Um, so we did have a lot of women at the company. But, you know, it's very important to, to pay attention, um, not just to your, your senior leadership team, but also to um, women at the, at, at the most junior levels and make sure that they're also being given those opportunities uh, for mentorship, uh, opportunities for leadership, et cetera. All right. Well, if there is better evidence of the value of giving opportunities for leadership to women than Michelle Dipp herself, uh, I am hard-pressed to um, come up with it. As always, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. Hey, thanks for sticking around this week, and we will see you next time.